They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes, and when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. Five years ago, if you can believe it's been that long, I did an episode of this podcast based on that story from the Gospel of Mark. I called it a suicidal herd of pigs. Well, recently, I had the chance to revisit that episode and discuss it with my good podcasting buddies, Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast and Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast. Here is a little extra bonus for my listeners, a chance to listen in on our discussion. Hope you enjoy it. This is Retelling the Bible. Bonus Discussion The Gadarene Swine Welcome back to yet another collaboration between Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast, Scott McCandless of the Retelling the Bible podcast, and then me, Stephen Guerra, host of the History of the Papacy podcast. And we are going to talk about another one of Scott's narrativizations of a story from the Bible. And this one is going to be one of my favorites, I think. I'm. It's kind of like choosing between my children, which one's the favorite. Scott's going to set up the clip a little bit. Uh, Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Absolutely tickety-boo as ever. So we are going to tackle the story of the Gadarene swine, which is a story that's in each one of the Synoptic Gospels. Scott, why don't you set up the clip a little bit before we play it, and then you can maybe explain a little bit about the clip afterwards. Okay, well, I based the episode that I did specifically on on Mark's version of the story, which is always interesting because Mark always tells a little bit the story with a little bit more detail, a little bit longer. And so I always appreciate the way Mark tells the story. And I told it with a fair bit of backstory that hopefully we can get into. Because I really stumbled, and I think like any modern person, I really stumbled over the whole question of this idea of people being uh, possessed by unclean spirits or evil spirits. As a modern person, I don't really get into this idea of people being possessed. 
I don't think it's a very helpful way to think of people who may be struggling with various kinds of mental illnesses or other kinds of conditions. But at the same time, I understand that this is how people at the time these gospels were written, how they dealt with people who for various reasons just didn't fit in, didn't conform to the way that people were supposed to behave. And so in order to understand what was going on with this man, I needed to create a whole backstory. I assumed that he had some kind of mental illness that maybe we can get into after you hear the clip. But I assumed that there were some, he had been through some real trauma and this had put him into this situation. And so in order to understand the story, this is just the way I do my podcast, I needed to create a whole backstory for him. I had to give him a name. I called him Shimeon. And just giving a name to my characters sometimes gives me a depth of understanding of who they are. And this is a part of the backstory behind why this guy ended up in the tombs and understood by everyone else to be possessed by an evil spirit. And just a little warning before we play the clip, it does, because I believe this person had a very serious trauma in his past, it gives an account of abuse, rape, and mistreatment of various people in his life. And I believe that's what led him to that situation. He hated every moment of every day of his miserable existence, but he still couldn't give up. He kept his head down. He kept working in an almost completely empty hope that someday he would be able to buy the freedom of his family. He actually didn't even know where his son had ended up but he eventually received word that his wife and his daughter were enslaved as field workers on a nearby estate. The thought that they were so near made him redouble all of his efforts. The report made its way to the pig farm late one Friday afternoon. His taskmaster, a cruel man, who took a perverse pleasure in the misery of his workers, actually sought Shimeon out to tell him the news with a smirk on his face. There was a legionary camp staying in the area, while the men were in between campaigns, and there had been some unrest. The men had not been paid, they were in a foul mood, and some of them had gone on a rampage through the local farms stealing whatever they could, pilfering people's stores of wines and killing their animals. One group of them, particularly drunk, had broken into the slave quarters in the nearby estate and had started raping with great effectiveness. The taskmaster had come to tell Shimeon that over a period of several hours, both his wife and his young daughter had been raped repeatedly. His wife had found his daughter bruised and bleeding from places that she didn't even want to think about the next morning. Despite her own injuries, she did her best to nurse the girl back to health. 
but the child was too weak, and her spirit was too broken. When her daughter died, Shimeon's wife, filled with too much grief and shame, had found a, a bit of old rope and hanged herself. Shimeon was running, like he had never run before, the laughter of his taskmaster ringing in his ears as it would continue to ring forever. He was running away, away from the stench of the pigs, running towards the estate that had purchased his wife and daughter. How he actually found it through the veil of tears that covered his eyes, he would never know. But find it he did. Of course, the servants and the manager at the estate should have turned him away. He had no right to be there. But they took one look at him and recoiled. He looked like a man possessed by a demon. Perhaps he was. They made signs to protect themselves from evil spirits, and they fled. He finally found them. They had been thrown into a shallow ditch, and for whatever reason had not been buried yet. Perhaps the people were afraid of them, afraid of the power of the tragedy that they had suffered. Shimeon was afraid too, but he knelt down and dissolved into tears at the thought that he had failed to protect them, that he had not been able to save them from the legion. There was only one thing he could do for them, and it was not easy at all. He managed to carry them both all the way to the local graveyard and to his own family tomb. The place was right by his old family property, which was now a pig farm, of course. It was the one thing that no one could take away from him. Once he had placed them in the tomb, he ripped his clothes put ashes on his head, and bowed that he would never leave that place until God's kingdom might come. Now, Scott, you were quite cunning in the way you constructed this story to tie it into the word legion. Yes, <laughs> I guess that's that's the question. Yes, um, there's a number of assumptions I jumped to from the story. First of all, the fact that he was living in the tombs, I took as an indication of this is someone who is struggling with grief and loss. You know, so this is someone who has unresolved grief. So I jumped to the conclusion that his trauma probably had to do with the loss of significant people in his life. And obviously, this is someone, and we'll probably get into this, who has real animosity towards pigs. He doesn't like pigs. Then I jumped to the, to the, to, to the conclusion, given that we do know that there was a lot of people who seem to have lost their property around the time of Jesus. If you look at Jesus' parables, they're full of references to day laborers, to people who have become slaves. His parables are just populated with people like that. 
because there was a lot of people who were suffering economically. And as a result, they had lost their family farms that had been passed down in their families probably for generations. This was an ancient agricultural society, but Roman society had really disrupted that. And because of high taxation and high costs, people were being pushed into debt and they were losing their farms. They were losing farms that had been in their family. So I kind of assume that this is probably what also happened to this fellow. He had probably been pushed by economic extremity into losing property. And perhaps maybe that property was now being used to raise pigs. That might be one reason why he really resented and hated pigs. The other connection, of course, is then to the legion. <laughs> so we do know, obviously, that the Romans were occupying that whole region. They were part of the occupation force. And we all know, I mean, this is, this is a historical fact, how occupying armies behave. And they do not behave well. You know, there's a long history of occupying armies, abusing, misusing, you know, engaging in rape and pillage and all kinds of things. That's what occupying armies do. So is it really unlikely that this man had had some very negative run-ins with Roman soldiers? So all of this seems kind of reasonable that this could have been the backstory of this guy and this trauma that he, that he had dealt with. And so when he's challenged to give a name to what is causing his suffering, he comes back with the name Legion. When he is challenged to say, what will set you free from this? He thinks of pigs. Those are the things I started with. Now, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospels which take over Mark's account simply uses the word Legion to mean many, large number. He explicitly says that. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the demon is, my name is Legion, for we are many. But as you point out, it is much more likely it refers to the Roman military unit. And I did a bit of research, the uh, Legion 10 Fratensis. You know, 10 Fratensis was in Judea and Syria for an incredibly long time, almost 300 years. And their standard was a boar. That's interesting. So I would I would have thought that it is an ex, an explicit reference to uh, Legio Ten Fratensis, which was occupying the area when this gospel was written. Exactly. Yes. It's kind of interesting because with so many of these stories, they don't the gospel writers don't give you a lot of exposition, and so you're at almost the exposition gets immediately filled up with your own ideas. And my thought. Uh, initially when I had first heard of this story and thinking about it is that it was some sort of Greek or Roman. And that was my initial thought of somebody who was probably mentally ill and they were forced to go live in the tombs because that was a common thing was mentally ill people or outcasts would go live in the necropolis, which surrounded especially these cities of the Decapolis 
they were surrounded with necropolises, necropoli, if you will. And that's what I thought. Uh, my initial exposition was, oh, he was a Greco-Roman of some sort, ostracized probably because they thought he was mentally ill. Well, they thought he was demon-possessed, probably uber-demon-possessed. That's why he was living in the tombs, in the caves, having fetters put on him. So then for me, the exposition is to fill in as why does Jesus heal this particular demoniac over the probably every town had somebody like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, it's just one of these stories. It's one of the stories that obviously the gospel writers, I think, include as examples of the kind of thing that Jesus was doing everywhere. And I do think that Jesus was pretty clearly kind of famous as someone who dealt with demons, you know. But as you say, the location is really kind of interesting. You can look at the maps and we can't quite be sure. Even the various gospels disagree on the name of the place where we are. But it seems to be someplace in, like you say, the Decapolis, which were ten, a group of 10 cities that were Greek cities up what, northeast of the Sea of Galilee uh, in that region. And there was obviously a large Greek population there, but it was also at the same time a very mixed population. This person could well have been a Gentile, a Greek-speaking person. As I, At least as I looked at it and as I told the story, I kind of thought he sounded like a Jew and in particular, you know, he might have been part of my, uh, my minority in that area as a Jew, which that in itself obviously sets him apart from everyone else. He's obviously very much an outcast kind of person, so that kind of fits. But then again, his animosity to pigs. You can understand how pigs, how pigs would be particularly offensive. If he was forced, because he lost his property, forced to work, maybe even on the, on the farm that he used to own, that used to belong to his family, and take care of pigs, that would have been just sort of this intense insult as a Jew. So you can kind of understand maybe the deep resentment he had to pigs. You know, that for him, you know, a necessary step for his healing seems to be he needs to see a bunch of pigs get really, really badly hurt. It's a way of releasing some of the rage he's carrying inside of the way he's been treated. One thing I was thinking about when reading this story and then listening to your narrativization is it's it's odd the way they set up pigs and pigs is such a weird thing to bring up will agree that there's some Greco-Roman element to it and that this Decapolis is Greco-Roman, but pigs generally don't hang out in great herds. That's not what pigs do. If they were in an agricultural setting, the pig is the most democratic animal you can have, and people in the past would have one or two pigs just because the pig's born in the spring and then you kill it around the end of the year. They grow really quickly. You can have two or three of them and they essentially eat your garbage. They're a walking composter. Yeah, my father back in the old country, his family had a pig. 
and he said every year he was quite traumatized when they had to kill it. It's part part of the family, yes. Spring pig is the one that's um, from Charlotte's Web. Wilbur was the spring pig, and he was going to get killed for Christmas dinner until he was saved by a spider or something. Herd like that would seem a pastoralist thing where a, a, a landowner of some means would have a herd of something. But if they had a herd of something, they probably weren't going to have a herd of pigs. Well, obviously, Jews didn't raise pigs at all because they wouldn't have eaten them and they found them to be unclean. But you're right. Yes. In the ancient world, most often pigs were, you know, in small herds. But we also do know that the Romans had a habit of putting together what they called latifundia, which were these large factory farms. And so what they would do, and this was their policy in much of Italy, um, and quite likely in Palestine as well, where they would seize all of these small little farms and they would put them all together into what you know we would call today factory farms. And they would specialize in, you know, what you call today monoculture. They would do large crops, whether it be wheat or or barley or various animals. So I kind of assumed that this is a kind of latifundia type operation, which is probably something that is imposed by foreign Italian or Greek business people on the area. And I kind of assumed that maybe these pigs were being raised to, guess what, feed the legion that was stationed in the area, you know. And so maybe there was this need to have a large herd of pigs to keep the legionaries well-fed. If your land's been effectively stolen or you, you became a debtor and maybe you even had to sell yourself into slavery and your family farm has been taken over by a corporate who's raising these animals you're not keen on, very traumatic. I had read something interesting that pigs in ancient Near East culture at this point were forbidden. But at one point they were, and I think it was the Akkadians or one of the Mesopotamian Semitic cultures, pigs were actually an acceptable sacrifice. And it was for the same reason that a lot of people think that later cultures like the the Jews rejected pigs is that they ate garbage and they'll basically eat anything. And that in the, the more distant past, they accepted them as an offering because they almost were like a, you could consider them almost a sin sponge, like anything that eats anything. And then at the end of the day, you can actually eat it afterwards. It has to be good. I'm wondering if there's a theological point that maybe Jesus is making because the pig is obviously in Judean culture and Jewish culture is seen as this absolutely forbidden thing. Is is that maybe a start of changing the law and saying that the law isn't the kosher law and the law of Moses is not the key element anymore? That strikes me as a sin offering that the, the pig is literally a scapegoat. It's a weird imagery why that would be that way. So in your interpretation, Jesus is basically saying that pigs are now acceptable as a sin offering. And as you say, brackets, the law of Moses isn't 
everything. It's just weird. I don't know. I'm not um, implying anything because I probably am in no position to imply it. It's just weird why pigs and why pigs being treated as a sacrificial animal. I, I, had, I, I get your point. I tended to read it more from probably from a modern psychological point of view. You know, I see this man as deeply traumatized. And I see Jesus addressing the things that have traumatized him. So then we get into that question of where this happened. And we we do is it does happen in some place that's not in Jesus's traditional stomping ground. And I wonder, uh, Scott, when you were envisioning this and Gary, too, why would Jesus go outside of his his traditional stomping grounds into basically expanding into new territory. I can't remember why, but from what I remember, Jesus only spends a very short time in the territory of, it's Philip the Tetrarch, I think he controls it, and he makes basically a sort of a lightning campaign through there, but, but then retreats back to Galilee. Okay, Jesus spends pretty much his entire life in Galilee. He has a, uh, an expedition to Philip's Gentile territory, and he has a brief expedition up the coast in, into the province of Syria, really. And then he ends his life with the, with the long journey to Jerusalem. Scott, have you got any ideas why did Jesus make this detour, this campaign tour, this um, show tour? I think, at least in Mark's gospel, which you know we presume to be the first, there's this thing where the Sea of Galilee is the transition. And so a lot of it is Jesus gets on a boat, he goes over here, and this thing happens. And then he goes over there, and that thing's happened. He uses the Sea of Galilee to break up these little stories of what happens where Jesus goes here and there. Mark doesn't really have a really good grasp on Galilean or, or geography. So how aware he is that this is a Gentile area, I'm not entirely sure. I think perhaps Matthew might be a little bit more aware of the geography. Luke also is not really good on geography. Like when, for example, we have the story of Jesus going up and seeing that, meeting the Syrophoenician woman, clear point is made that he is now in Gentile territory. Here in this story, there doesn't seem to be a big deal made of that. The only indication seems to be the large number of pigs, that this is a Gentile area. But there's really nothing else in the story itself that indicates it's a Gentile territory. And the Gospels name different towns. In Greek, is it Gadara or Gadara? Where is the emphasis? Any, any, anyone refresh their ancient Greek? I don't know that, and they can also call it Gadaras as well. And then there's Garasa and there's Gergesa. Yeah, so nobody needs, seems to be quite sure exactly where this is. <laughs> even the gospel writers don't seem to be quite sure. Even when they're copying from Mark, they, they change it. I think it's interesting what Scott said about that some of the gospel writers were a little sketchy on their geography. The Decapolis, there was Gadara or Gadaris that was also called Geresa, but then there was another city called Jerash. 
And I think that there's some controversy whether the this Gadarene demoniac story happened in Gadara or Jarash. And Jarash is about, I'd say, like maybe a good week's travel from the Galilee. If you left out from northern the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, you hit a little bit of a storm along your way. The Sea of Galilee is hard to wrap your mind around. It's a really small lake. And yet at the same time, the Sea of Galilee was the largest freshwater lake in the Eastern Roman Empire. Can anyone put a numerical value on, say, its north-south distance? It's a few miles, a few kilometers. It's not, and it's roughly circular, give or take. Can you um, see from coast to coast? Yeah, you would be able to, especially if you were on high land, you could easily see if because the Jordan River Valley is so it's so steep, you really can see a long way in the distance. So then you can see where uh, getting back to where Gadara was, that probably does. It makes a lot of sense because the scene right before is that they're in the boat and they're in tossed by the sea. So if they left late at night, it would it could take about six hours to sail or probably more row your way from the northern end to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. Then it's about four kilometers from the tip of the lake to actual the, the city of Gadara, where Jarash is a good week's journey. Now, I'm dying to hear about Hipposacida. Hipposacida is Hippos and Susida. The Aramaic name was Susida, which just means horse, and then Hippos was Greek for horse. I don't know why they named it horse. So the city was on about a, a thousand feet, so like a 300 or 300 meter plateau right about in the middle of the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a really rich city. And the plateau went fairly much straight down because if you can you can see on the map today what would have probably have been the ancient track. And it's a I think it's eight switchbacks to get to the bottom. Uh. But I think there would be no reason that in antiquity, there it's the perfect spot for a little fishing village at the bottom of this plateau. And the archaeology, you can, again, you can look at, you can walk through it and Google Earth and see all of the monumental ar architecture on this, in this town. From Capernaum all the way down, Everyone would have been able to see Hippos in this absolutely beautiful Greco-Roman city. It was, I think it was also a tourist attraction and a place where Romans and Greeks would go to uh, summer and get away from the heat. Oh, okay. I think that, that must have just been in Jesus and the Galileans' mind. Like, look at this absolute wealth up on this literally city on a hill. But that's an even shorter trip from Gadara, and that would have been actually geographically to run a herd of swine off of it. There actually are cliffs there, where at Gadara, like I said, it's, it was still a good four kilometers plus to get to the, even from the, there's a, a shrine to the uh, Gadarene demoniac in a cave outside of the ruins of Gadara. 
I mean, I don't know how far pigs can run or how fast. Are you going to sit there and watch pigs run for an hour? You run into the sea, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hippos, more or less, if they ran off of there, they would fall into the sea after that. And another thing in Hippos' favor is that there's some of the early writers thought that Hippos would have been in the backdrop to the Sermon on the Hill or the Sermon on the Plain, where it's supposed to have been located. Jesus, That would have been Jesus's backdrop was the city of Hippos on the other side of the Jordan and on the other side of the Galilee. Well, I can certainly imagine, you know, just just the idea of pigs running off a cliff like that. It, it, it would have just absolutely fired maybe the gospel writers imaginations that this is, yeah, this is just the perfect setting. Yeah. Yeah. And a way to to express sort of resentment towards these big, prosperous yeah. Greco-Roman cities. Okay, so, so you're arguing, Steve, that, that the original town was Hippos, or the story was set there, but for some reason, Mark changed it. Or maybe it was just that a, was a folk story, or a story that he maybe didn't actually see, but, oh, some people said it happened in Gadara. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I'd love to hear what you two think. So at the end, the healed person wants to go with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, follow me. He says, no, stay here and say what happened. Why would he do that? Assuming this starts with Mark, it's this strange theme that runs through the Gospel of Mark of this this whole secret thing, right? Where every time Jesus does something amazing, every time he casts out demons, he tells them to be quiet. If somebody heals somebody, he says, don't tell anybody. This, yeah, this one is a little bit different, right? Because Jesus says he wants to go with him. He says, no. But go home and tell your friends, and then he spreads the word in the Decapolis. And maybe the thing that is different is that it's not being spread in Galilee. It's not being spread in the Jewish region. People have been struggling to understand this whole idea of the, the messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark for centuries now. And I haven't, I've yet to hear somebody who gives a really good explanation. Maybe on some level it's that Jesus is okay if this the word about him is spread in the Gentile regions, but he really wants to clamp on, down on it in the Jewish regions. This is the real mystery in the Gospel of Mark. I also thought one interesting detail was the fact that after Jesus conducts the exorcism, the locals become terrified and demand that he leave. Now, in a lot of other stories, the locals are super impressed. And as you say, Jesus has to tell them, no, 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 keep your mouth shut. But in this case, it's it's the opposite. They want him to just get out of there. It's discordant. He just does this great thing and then, oh, we're terrified. You better get out of here. It's not good for the economy if if all of the pigs are being killed. That That's got to be at least part of it. But I think if in some way what he has done is a kind of action against the occupation, you know, is this an anti-Legion thing that he's done? If the pigs were being used to feed the Legion, uh, is this about, this is dangerous political territory. This is, this is actually a political act that he's committed here, which 
he maybe does from time to time, but he often does it way out in the middle of the wilderness, you know, where nobody's looking. I just think that this is one of the most interesting stories, I think, in the whole Gospels, and that the fact that it does get recounted in each one of them it, uh, in its own in its own way, I think that that makes it even more interesting that they really did think that this story was something to be worth telling. And it's a very long story, too, compared to a lot of other ones. I, I think I always sort of found the whole thing about him living in the tombs. I found that very interesting. That that was that led me down some interesting rabbit holes. I as as I told you, I tend to understand that as some aspect of unresolved grief. But it's also uh, we know that ancient cities they tended to build their their graveyards on the outside of the city uh, intentionally. So around the edges of the city was where they buried people. We also know that they probably, they would visit these graveyards on a regular basis. They would actually bring gifts of food. They would put bread and wine. There were even little niches in the graves, even in Jewish graves. They would sometimes have these niches for putting food for the people. And you can well imagine these people like this man who don't fit in, who are non-compliant to society, who are essentially dead as far as the society is concerned, they would claim this food for themselves. And I, I found that kind of interesting. That Well, I thought it was very ingenious of you to take all those little details in the story and construct this is really very detailed backstory. But you're good at that in your show. I like doing that. Yeah. <laughs> when you actually try and tell these as coherent stories and assume that there's got to be a background and all of that, I think there's a lot of stuff that you can discover. And obviously, I know I'm not always right. I know that uh, somebody else might construct it differently. And I do believe that Jesus did help people like that. And I'm not just talking about miraculous helping Sure, maybe he had powers like other people don't, but obviously he listened to these people like nobody else. Somebody who actually listens to you and takes your problems seriously, that can be the beginning of healing. So that was a great conversation about a really fascinating topic. And I know I would love to hear more of Scott's stories. If there's a story of Scott's that in particular you would like to hear, definitely go and tune into his podcast and suggest one of the stories. I know I have a couple in mind. Signing off for Scott, who is the host of, again, the host of Retelling the Bible podcast. Gary, who is the host of History in the Bible podcast, and me, Steve, host of the History of the Papacy podcast. We will talk to you next time. That is it for this special episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode next week. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ah uh, Da, and the mood music in the original episode was Curse of the Scarab. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at filmmusic.io. 
You can contact me on twitter.com at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I am, as always, your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>